I do. Uh, Clark did uh, mention that we will have uh, more times of lament and processing um, this week on Thursday and next week, the following week on Wednesday. Um, and just to, just to let you know, nobody died in the process. Um, there was nothing that was uh, thrown. Um, there were some hard feelings that were expressed, um, but by the grace of God, we were able to hold the space and process uh, process through together. So I do invite you, if you haven't already, to sign up as we process one of the uh, significant things in the recent past, the, de- the departure of a senior pastor after nearly two decades. Um, so again, whether your, your view or perspective was positive, whether it was um, many hard things, probably somewhere in between, um, 20 years is, is a significant time. There's a lot shared during that time. So I invite you to, to take this opportunity to process some of this with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our reading for this morning, as I mentioned earlier, is from Psalm 130. Psalm 130, Lamenting Our Sin. Before we turn to God's word, let us turn to God and ask his favor and blessing uh, as we come into this time under his word. God, we thank you that your word is available to us, that uh, we are able to open it up, whether that's on uh, our phone, maybe it's in front of us, uh, hard copy, black and white, we get to look at your word. But Lord, we know that just merely reading these words doesn't do much if it is not um, through the lens and through the power of your spirit. So God, we pray for your spirit to fall on us, that you would bless our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts, so that we might hear what you have to say f- uh, to us from your word. God, give us this grace as we seek to love you more, as we seek to love each other more as we seek to grow in knowledge of this grace, of your great love for us. Bless us now in this time, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, we are turning to the Psalms in this series of lament, and once again, we find one of God's people crying out to God. Psalm 130 is a psalm of lament. 
It's a psalm of lament, but it's, it's a particular kind of lament. It's a, special, uh, it's a special kind of lament or a special kind of psalm. It's a penitential psalm. Has anybody heard that word? A penitential psalm. This is a psalm that brings sorrow and grief before God. But it is particularly sorrow and grief over sin. It's an expression uh, of grief as we think about um, our own sin and the way that we transgress God's law and the way that we move away from God's will for our lives. This is a psalm of repentance. Is this anybody's favorite psalm? No? Well, you would share company if it was with some um, pretty... Uh, recognizable figures. This was one of John Calvin's favorite psalms. Uh, this played a role in John Wesley's conversion. So we have uh, a Reformed uh, individual, and then we have a, a Wesleyan individual, Methodist individual. So two maybe different spectrums of, the, of theology. You remember uh, John Wesley and his conversion story. Well, he, uh, he heard Psalm 130 being sung from uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London on this same day uh, that he had his heart strangely warmed, if you remember that language, and his life was turned over to Christ, Psalm 130, playing a role in his uh, transformation and his conversion. And we have Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a fondness for this psalm. Uh, he penned a hymn based on the words, from the depths of woe I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee? Psalm 130 is a beloved psalm of some, of many. Psalm 130 is perhaps one of the clearest expressions of the gospel message in all of the Old Testament. It invites us to bring our sin, invites us uh, to bring our grief and our sorrow over sin to God and look not unto ourselves for salvation. It begs us to turn away from ourselves and instead to look to the only one who can pull us out of the pit. It turns us ultimately to God and to his son Jesus Christ in salvation that is offered only through him. And what we find in this psalm is that uh, this psalmist is crying out. He is crying out this prayer of lament, Lord, hear my cry for mercy. From the depths I am calling out to you. Uh, just like we had last week in Psalm 88, uh, this language is evocative of uh, the psalmist being out in the open water, a very dangerous place to be, a place of chaos, a place of death and destruction. Well, this language, though, could also be, uh, this imagery can be used of being stuck in a pit. Stuck in a deep pit. Whatever the, the psalmist is trying to communicate, whatever image we connect with, the, the point of it, it is clear that the psalmist is feeling like his, his situation, that he is stuck and there is no way to get out. He is stuck in this dangerous pit, this dangerous place, walking toward death and there is no escape for him. This is like being trapped in an avalanche, being buried under uh, mounds and mounds of snow, and the only way that you are going to get out is if somebody from the outside comes and rescues you. 
This is like being trapped under the rubble of a building after an earthquake where you are stuck under tons and tons of concrete structure. And again, the only way that you are going to get out, the only way that you are going to be free from this is for somebody to come in and pull you out. So this is the language that the the psalmist uses. Out of the depths I cry to you. Lord, have mercy. If you kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is crying out. The psalmist is lamenting his sin. He's lamenting his situation. He's lamenting the way that he has transgressed against God's law. And I think for us, this language again is unfamiliar, maybe even uncomfortable. Maybe it's, it's become so foreign, foreign that we are kind of repulsed by it and we, we push away from it. So what's going on? Why is, it, why is it so foreign for us to bring our lament of our sin before God? Well, back in the early 2000s, there was a study that was conducted by a group of sociologists. Um, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at uh, religion and youth, uh, the religious beliefs of American youth. So they interviewed thousands of teenagers Uh, in America, and what they found uh, was summarized by this system of beliefs that they called moralistic therapeutic deism. Has anybody heard of that? Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a big, big words. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is not a, it's not a religion in itself, but it's more of a worldview. It's like it's putting on glasses, and this is how we see the world around us. This is how we make sense of the world around us. And what they found from interviewing these thousands of teenagers is that they shared um, some commonalities. They, they shared some, some points of agreement as it comes to religion. So these are uh, the five things, really, uh, these five points of belief uh, that uh, they found that uh, when it boiled down that this group of American teenagers uh, would express and say, yes, this this is the belief. One, first is that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Okay, we can say, yeah, we, we buy that, right? Second, God wants people to be good, Nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and other world religions. Again, we could say, okay, with some qualifications, that sounds aligned with what we know to be, to be biblical. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Okay, so maybe this is where we're, we're starting to deviate. The for, fourth point of, uh, of belief or of... Um, of uh, coherence here is a God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
Now, this was conducted back in the early 2000s. So I was a teenager uh, when all this was going on. And I, my, thoughts, my thoughts are that, well, they did not learn this on their own. They had to learn this from other people, the culture around them, and probably maybe their parents, maybe other influencers. And now as we grow up, as I grow up, and I'm no longer a teenager, I'm, I'm uh, 38, um, I am influencing my family. I'm influencing my friends around me. And so I would say that this is not not just located in the beliefs of teenagers. This is more widespread across all age ranges. And while we maybe laugh at some of these points of belief, I do think that they have taken some root and they have taken hold and shaped the way that we view our faith. So the question is, well, what do we do with our sin? What do we do? I think maybe some of us, we push it away. So this third point, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Does it feel good when you are confronted with your sin? Is it therapeutic for somebody to say there is a divine law, a divine moral standard, an objective moral standard by which everyone is judged, by which the whole world is judged, and I have been breaking that law? Does that feel good? That doesn't feel good, so of course I'm going to want to push it away. Or maybe uh, this fourth point, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. This is the deism part. Deism says that God is up there. Yeah, he's a little bit concerned. Really what he does is he started this world up and then he's just letting it go on his own. And he has a little bit of involvement, but not too much. So in this, uh, with this belief, the way we look at sin maybe is to minimize it. We think, well, God is disinterested. God is unconcerned, so why would I be concerned about this sin that is going on in my life? Uh, this fifth point, good people go to heaven when they die. Now for me, I think... This, uh, this points to the way that I, or we, we relativize sin. We, we don't judge ourselves. We don't look at ourselves and God's standing based on a divine moral standard, an objective moral standard. What we do is we look at uh, based on what everybody else is doing and I'm comparing myself uh, to what I see going on around me, whether it's the culture around me, whether it's my friends, my family, and I say, as long as I am better than them, well, then I am doing pretty good. I remember back in, back in high school, um, being on the baseball team, um, and just the, the, the language that was used around sex and around um, you know, how far you're getting with your girlfriend. Um, and it's almost this, this idea of celebrating, celebrating some of these um, things that we would call sinful or walking away from God's will. And so we, we begin to relativize it, or maybe we even celebrate it. I think sometimes we, we might recognize that there is something that we are doing wrong, and so we try to compensate for it. So if one area of my life, I know that something is going wrong, well, then I try to make up for it in the other. Again, good people go to heaven, so I have to, I have to be able to balance the scales. So this has never happened before, but if I uh, am nasty to a customer representative on the phone, and I'm feeling this, this weight and this guilt uh, about it, well, 
well, it makes sense if I go to the grocery later that day and I'm extra nice uh, to the clerk who is checking me out, who is, who is ringing up my groceries. I'm trying to balance the scales. Again, this never happens, but I could see it, I could see it happening. What are we doing with our sin? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What is our view of sin? What is our view of God? And is it shaping the way that we view sin? Is it shaping the way that we are seeing sin? Are we minimizing it? Are we celebrating it? Are we trying to push it away? Are we um, walking in a way that is, that is not approved by God and so we try to compensate for it? What are we doing with our sin? Well, the language of this psalm, Psalm 130, what it does is it reorients us, kind of in a maybe more of a shocking way than what we like, but it reorients us. It gives us a way, it gives us a path of what we are to do with our sin. We see the psalmist crying out, Lord, have mercy. The psalmist recognizes the extent of his sin. He recognizes this dire situation that he's in. He recognizes that he is in the pit, that there is nothing that can get him out of this pit. These walls go up too high. Somebody has to reach their hand down. Somebody has to jump in the pit with them in order to pull him out. He recognizes that he has sinned against, that he has offended the most holy God. This God who has entered into relationship with his people. This God who has given of himself everything. The psalmist recognized that he has turned away. And the only thing that he can do, the only move that he has is to cast himself upon God's mercy and to depend on God's mercy to not give him what he deserves, to withhold this punishment, to withhold justice, to withhold wrath, because, as he says, I stand condemned. If you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? What does the psalmist find? He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't push the sin away. He doesn't try to compensate and say, uh, look at Jeremiah. He, uh, look at how much stuff that he is doing. No, he owns the sin. He takes it before God, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. And what does he find? With the Lord, there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This psalmist was depending upon the gracious character of God. He is calling out to the Lord. He's calling out to Yahweh, again, evoking the covenant name. Invoking the covenant name of Yahweh, this God who is faithful to the covenant, this God who is faithful to his people. He is saying, Lord of the covenant, have mercy on me. He's using the name Adonai, the sovereign Lord, the only one who can drag him out of this pit, the only one who can bring him back to life. He comes to God with his sin looking for God's mercy and depending upon not himself, not his own merit, but on what God promises to do. So for us, when we come to God with our lament, when we come to God recognizing our sin, what do we find? What do we find in this discipline, in this practice of bringing our sin before God? First, we find freedom. 
We find freedom from our guilt. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. Paul, in the, the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, he says that godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation. Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation. Likewise, Jesus himself in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 4, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, many commentators suggest that this is a mourning, this is a grieving, this is a sorrow over sin. Jesus is taking this language from the book of Isaiah, where the people are exiled, where the people have been cast out of God's presence because of sin. Mourn and weep. James tells us, James, uh, the Apostle James in uh, James chapter 5 tells us to mourn and to weep, uh, to be full of mourning and not laughter over your sin. And what we find as we come to God with our sin is that he does lift us out of the pit. God does remove from us this burden of guilt. He does remove from us uh, these transgressions. So first we find that God gives us freedom. Freedom to live a new life in Christ. Second, what we find we bring this lament before God is it increases our intimacy with him. With the Lord there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Well, this is not a this is not a, a, a holy crap. I've offended God. God is um, going to strike me dead, so I better follow Him. Kind of fear. No, this is a, a relational fear. This is a fear that recognizes what God has done. This is a a fear, uh, more of an awe, a joyful awe for seeing who God is in his disposition toward us, his gracious disposition. And we recognize when we allow the full weight of sin to have its bearing and effect on us, we come and we bring it before God, and we hear that you are forgiven, we get a picture of who God really is. One, uh, one commentator has said that the quickest way, the quickest way um, to, to lighten or to make less, uh, have less of an impact on the gospel is to lighten our sin or lighten the effect or the depth of our sin. So I think likewise, the, the inverse of that is true, the converse of that is true is that when we, we recognize our sin, we allow ourselves to feel the weight of our sin, we get a better picture of who God is and his forgiveness for us. The, the ultimate goal, the ultimate aim of the psalmist is not forgiveness of sin. As important that it is, as that is, the ultimate goal of our faith is not the forgiveness of sin. The ultimate goal of our faith is relationship with God. The problem is that sin creates a separation in that relationship. By Jesus Christ, that is removed so that we can be back together in this place of relationship with God. So um, lamenting our sin increases our intimacy. Third, what, uh, what bringing our honest sin before God is it, is it reveals our deeper idols. Uh, Mark Vrorigap um, wrote a book called A Deep... Uh, dark clouds, deep mercy. And he says that uh, lament shines a spotlight. Lament shines a spotlight on those things we are putting too much hope in. 
So when we come before God with our sin, we come before God with our sorrow, with our guilt over sin, that what it does is it allows God to shine a searchlight or a spotlight and to probe uh, just what exactly is going on. So again, this probably has never happened, but if I have this situation where I yell at one of my daughters when we were at a restaurant, if I get really upset uh, by something that she does and I, I, I lash out in her in anger and I realize that this, this is not right. This is, not, this is a sin against her. This is a sin against God for my actions toward her. And I bring this to God and I say, God, I lament. I am sorrowful that I acted this way towards my daughter. And if I slow down and if I sit in it and if I allow the, the weight of this sin to be brought before God and to be felt, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he may just ask me a question. He may just confront me and say, what was really going on? What was really going on when you lashed out at your daughter for her not listening to you, for her acting up at the restaurant? Are you trying to find something in her that you should be finding in me? Are you making her behavior a determiner of your identity? If I have kids that are successful, if I have kids that are well-behaved, does that make me look better? Does that make me feel better as a parent? Am I trying to find my identity, my, my source of comfort and my stability in the behavior of my children? This all just coming out from, from, a, from an anger lash out at one of my kids at a restaurant. But God, God probes us deeper in his grace as we bring our sin before him. He probes us deeper, asking us to consider what is the idol really uh, that is uh, another layer underneath. Finally, lamenting our sin uh, invites us to hope. It leads us into hope and it leads us and guides us into trust. <clears throat> More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Put your hope. Put your hope in the Lord. Now for this psalmist, for this psalmist there is forgiveness of sins but then he points us uh, to this waiting. When we bring our sin before God, we can be 100% confident. We can be absolutely certain that Jesus Christ cleanses us from all guilt, from all shame, from all impurity, from any stain of our record. That it has been wiped clean because of the work of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt in that. And yet, there may remain a cloud, a haziness over the presence of God. As one commentator says, this was Tim Keller, I think, um, the sense, the sense of God's presence, a sense of God's presence may be longer in coming. That lingering effect of sin, that, that cloud or that haze may remain over us even though we know that we have been cleansed, that we have been fully forgiven. And so what do we do? We wait and we trust and we hope. We turn to God. We don't base it on our feelings. We don't base it on our sense of God's presence in our lives. We don't base it um, on our feeling of God's nearness. We turn and we put our hope and our trust in God's word because this is where he promises to be faithful to us. I promise to le never leave you. I promise to never forsake you. And so we watch and we wait expectantly. As watchmen wait for the morning, as, as watchmen yearn for the morning, for the safety, for the relief that it provides, we long and we wait in confidence and we hope, no matter how dark the night may seem, that the Lord will come to us. Put your hope in the Lord. 
for with him there is forgiveness. So may we as a body turn ourselves to the Lord and bring to him all that we have. May we find the forgiveness of sin. May we find deeper intimacy with God. May you allow him to reveal these idols that we have and may he lead us into this place of hope. So Midland Reformed Church, put your hope, put your hope in God. For with God there is forgiveness and through the work of Jesus Christ he will forgive us all our sins. All God's people said, Amen.